0: You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 20th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Music Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you from Midori House in London. I'm
1: Georgina Godwin.
0: On the show ahead, Joe Biden has addressed the nation.
1: Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighbouring democracy.
0: We'll get the latest on the Israel-Hamas conflict. Biden wants billions more in aid for Ukraine and Israel, but U.S. government business is paralysed as there's still no speaker in the House of Representatives. We'll hear more about the unedifying saga as the Republicans tear themselves apart at the expense of the country. Also coming up, we'll examine Russian nuclear weapons in Belarus and we'll head to Latin America.
1: Argentina has all of the ingredients we've seen in other parts of the world and other parts of Latin America that have led voters to be much more open to anti-establishment candidates. Only in Argentina, everything is more extreme.
0: We look ahead to the crunch presidential election there this weekend. We'll tell you about the Paris Art Fair and we'll give you a roundup of the latest theatre news. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Drones and rockets targeted two military bases housing US forces in Iraq yesterday in the latest in a series of attacks after Iraqi militants warned Washington against intervening to support Israel against Hamas in Gaza niger's ruling junta said late last night it had thwarted an overnight attempt by deposed president mohammed Bazoum to escape detention with his family nearly three months after he was detained in the wake of a military coup and canada's foreign minister says that 41 of the country's diplomats have been removed from india after the indian government said it would revoke their diplomatic immunity do stay tuned to monocle radio throughout the day for more on those stories Now, we begin the show with the latest on the Israel-Hamas conflict. The Israeli military continued its aerial bombardment of Gaza and said it was preparing for the next phase of the war. It's estimated over 3,000 civilians have now been killed in Gaza. More bodies have been found in Israeli neighbourhoods close to the border with Gaza following the 7th of October attack by Hamas. They include 20 children who'd been tied up and burned. Meanwhile, US President Joe Biden, who's just returned from Tel Aviv, used his second ever Oval Office address to the nation to say that supporting the security of Ukraine and Israel was critical to buttressing the US-led global order, characterising the current moment as an inflection point in history. I'm joined now by Nick Gowing, Distinguished Fellow at Royal United Services Institute, founder of Thinking the Unthinkable Project and a former international news broadcaster with the BBC and ITN. Nick, thank you so much for coming on. It's lovely to speak to you again. Um, Can we start with with that Biden speech because he has committed an awful lot of money, billions, we believe in excess of 100 billion
2: dollars. He's committing the money, but uh, he's got to get it through Congress, of course, and that's where there are big problems looming because of the problems in Congress at the moment, uh, particularly with the election coming up next year. So uh, he is making a very clear statement of intent and uh, wishes, but it's not necessarily guarantee that he's going to get the money either for what's happening in the Middle East or in Ukraine.
0: Mm. Uh, And now, of course, we know he's just returned from the Middle East, although his uh, uh, summit in Jordan had to be cancelled. And part of that was, of course, to try and convince Egypt that they need to open aid corridors. They need to let in refugees. Egypt is still not doing that. No refugees into the Sinai, they say. Uh, Our own uh, Prime Minister uh, Rishi Sunak is going there today. Is there any movement on that front?
2: I don't think there is. I mean, in the end... If you've got literally hundreds of thousands of people near the Rafah camp, uh, Rafah crossing inside Gaza, that doesn't get them into Egypt. I actually found myself with an Egyptian official uh, a few days ago, and he said, You've got to understand, we already have 7 million refugees from other conflicts. Around the Horn of Africa, uh, seven million already, and uh, that's that means that we can't just accept these kind of people. We don't have the infrastructure. We can't cope with the numbers and the enormous material demand on them will be in, will will be significant. But what you've got is is a uh, real pressure now on Egypt to take more of the Gaza refugees. But they are refugees in their own land at the moment, and it's unlikely, I think, that you're going to see Egypt letting them in. And is there any aid to Gaza getting through from Egypt? None at all at the moment. There are twenty, at least 20 trucks or maybe hundreds of trucks lined up and I looked at those trucks, enormous sort of, sort of 40-ton vehicles saying to myself, this isn't going to um, give people much for, for a very long time. It's going to give them water, it's going to give them a little bit of material. But I heard the, uh, the head of UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, saying yesterday that they've got 300,000 children who've got to be handled, um, you know, who who need the basics of of milk and food and water and so on. So the volumes needed are just fantastic for probably at least a million people.
0: Mm. Now, of course, we know that the IDF is planning a ground uh, invasion. Uh, The Israel Defense Forces is is planning to go in uh, to Gaza. Uh, What are the traps ahead for them? Because obviously
2: this is expected. Hamas will have planned for it. Exactly that, Georgina. You've, you've almost taken the words out of my mouth there. Uh, Hamas will have uh, worked out what its escalation plan would be, uh, including with the tunnels and everything else. They know where everything is and they will be expecting a massive mobilisation, which we've seen in the last 10 days. 350,000 reservists um, who've been mobilised. Uh Urban warfare is the most vicious kind of warfare, particularly if you've got people who don't really understand where the where, what is going on and where stuff is, and much of it would have been demolished. I think um, Hamas will have played. I mean, they, it's it's difficult. It's easy to say this, but you need need to understand Hamas have handled this brilliantly in the sense that they've caught everyone off guard and they've achieved what they set out to do, which is to embarrass and uh, send a very clear message to Israel about, we don't want you here, we don't want Jews here, and we're prepared to kill you. It's a vicious, vicious... Cycle that they've created, and they will plan for the next stage in a way that certainly Israel has not prepared for. But putting Makarva tanks uh, on on the uh, perimeters and then sending them in is one thing, but what will they achieve, and uh, how will they achieve it, and where will they find those that they're looking for? Because they will have uh, gone to ground, and uh, already we know that at least six of the senior Hamas leadership have probably been killed, uh, according to the Israelis. We don't know what their special forces operations are, but this is a uh, an incredible warren that uh, Israeli defence forces are going into. And having all that hardware on the border is not the same as being effective in uh, in house-to-house, w- uh, building-to-building fighting.
0: Mm. I'd like to look at a sort of contagion in the region. Now, we know that the US military has shot down rockets from a, a US warship, uh, apparently those rockets heading for Israel. But
2: it, it, we're told that these may well have come from Houthi rebels in Yemen. Yeah, not just missiles, but cruise missiles. And they are long distance. Um, I, I I, think this is alarming, but I think you have to we have to uh, have a very sober assessment here, Georgina, which is this is now escalating in ways that no one can ever have expected. OK, I've been doing the work on thinking the unthinkable, but this is now moving in a way which you, no one could ever have predicted. And that kind of engagement and that kind of level of armament, which is available, it shows that the escalation is now sort of unlimited. Particularly when you look at what's happening in, with Hezbollah in Lebanon on on the northern Israel border. Particularly when you look at what is now happening, what you saw in in Brussels a few nights ago, mm. when two uh, supporters of the Swedish football team were 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 murdered in in in, in cold blood uh, in the streets there. And the reason I'm saying this is that i fear we are now returning to the 2000s when you had islamic jihad and you had uh, significant uh, significant terrorist operations not least the problem with those who are sitting in front of their laptops and who feel motivated to do dreadful things it's sobering to hear from mi6 and mi5 mi5 particularly they are tracking at least 6000 people in the united kingdom who are people of interest and they are following at least 2000 with much more close uh watching of what they do how they how they're working uh what they're doing in their bedrooms and in their studies and uh, on their on their iPhones and so on and what they're doing and planning and i fear that we have to now see this as a, a as a major terror threat globally and it reminds me very much of what was happening 15-16 years ago and that is I think fills us all with a degree of horror and uh, I think it's interesting and really sobering as well that the Hamas political leadership based in Qatar did not know what the Hamas military leadership in, in uh, Gaza were, were proposing to do and so that shows how there's a, a kind of binary system emerging here which is you've got those condemning what happened uh, and what uh, Hamas did against Israel you've got those who are supporting what Hamas have done and uh, I I have to say I was viewed with horror with the language which was used yesterday by Sunak uh, with uh, Netanyahu when he when he talked about is Britain backing Israel to win that means it's almost uh, an unofficial declaration of uh, a conflict with those who support Hamas, those who support Hezbollah, those who support Islamic Jihad, and those who are sitting in in their rooms, maybe in London, maybe in Manchester, maybe in uh, any anywhere around the world, and what the, they may have planned. Mm. It, it's a deeply forbidding experience at the moment.
0: Uh, talking about some of the, uh, the Hamas leadership being taken by surprise, do you think that I- Iran, too, uh, was slightly blindsided by this?
2: Yes, indeed. Um, there's clear evidence of that, uh, that this was not, uh, there was no consultation with Hezbollah, and there was a meeting in uh, in uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, in the margins of a conference between the Iranian foreign minister and the Saudi foreign minister a couple of days ago, and it shows that um, uh, given that they were at war until a few months ago when the Chinese brokered a big deal, which is normalization of relations, including diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. To have them sitting in the same place uh, inside uh, Saudi Arabia was remarkable. So I think there's a, a, a great degree of foreboding. Iran is not keen on what has happened, even though politically it might want to do anything to um, to, to destroy Israel, essentially. Uh, they also realized that this could get out of their control, too.
0: Nick, thank you very much indeed. That's Nick Gowing there. And this is The Globalist. Uh, It's uh, 12 minutes past two in Washington, D.C. That's 7.12 here in London. Jim Jordan, the far-right Republican candidate for the role of Speaker in the U.S. House of Representatives, has yet to break out of his own personal Groundhog Day. At one point yesterday, after getting fewer votes in the second ballot than he did in the first, Jordan backed down from his pledge to force a third vote, setting off a burst of activity on Capitol Hill as bipartisan groups of lawmakers rushed to draft legislation that would... Allow the chamber to begin functioning again without an elected speaker. But then he changed his mind and the cycle begins again. I'm joined by Simon Marks, a Washington based reporter, currently watching events for us uh, from here in London. Simon, what's going on?
3: Well, chaos is going on, really, Georgina. I mean, we're now into the 16th day without a speaker of the House of Representatives. And just to underscore, the speaker of the House of Representatives is not. The man or woman who shouts order, order and decides when people are going to speak and when they're going to be told to sit down and uh, stop barracking one another. The Speaker of the House of Representatives is the third most powerful elected figure in Washington after the president and the vice president, second in line for the presidency after the vice president. And the Speaker gets to decide essentially the legislative agenda. Uh, What bills are going to be brought to the floor for debate and passage into legislation? Legislation. So without a speaker. A total standstill uh, exists in terms of legislative activity, and there is no speaker because Republicans are so divided among themselves. As you know, in the last midterm elections, Donald Trump said there would be a landslide Republican victory. That was his prediction. It didn't work out that way. Republicans have only a four-seat majority in the House of Representatives, and internally they are divided between the far-right MAGA, Make America Great, again Republicans who are backing right now Jim Jordan to be speaker and more mainstream moderate Republicans, although uh, that that doesn't really stand the test of time in terms of that definition, but more mainstream Republicans uh, that have no interest in making Jim Jordan speaker. So uh, things are at a complete standstill, totally polarised, with no indication of any breakthrough ahead.
0: Well, and Jordan is now calling for a third vote. If, as Einstein is supposed to have put it, insanity. is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results, then isn't that mad?
3: Well, there is, of course, precedent for it, because remember, Kevin McCarthy, that the Republicans just defenestrated a speaker of the House of Representatives for the cardinal sin of having reached out across the aisle and working with the Democrats to keep the country's government open, at least temporarily. It took him 15 votes, a record, uh, actually, to become speaker of the House of Representatives back in January. Now, Jim Jordan has announced plans to hold a news conference uh, at eight o'clock in the morning, Washington time. We don't know what he's going to announce. He might actually be readying himself to bow to the inevitable. But quite how many times he's willing not just to put himself forward for a vote, but to lose ground because he keeps losing support, not gaining the support that he would need to become Speaker. Well, that ultimately is up uh, to Jim Jordan, the congressman from Ohio, to decide.
0: Mm, And of course, the the whole debate has become really toxic. There was, uh, I mean, uh, even farcical, there was a a reference to uh, the gender a debate and beer at one point. Yeah, yeah, I mean,
3: also dangerous. I mean, there are some members of the Republican caucus, it, the moderate Republican group, that, that say they have received death threats from supporters of Jim Jordan for not backing him. Now, Mr Jordan has completely disavowed those. We've also seen Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, the original bomb thrower, who essentially orchestrated uh, the the outing uh, of Kevin McCarthy 16 days ago, uh, saying that he's not willing to back a proposal that would empower the acting speaker, the speaker pro tempore, uh, who uh, basically has only one role at the moment, which is to conduct the election for the new speaker of the House of Representatives. There's been an idea floated that you could actually aggrandize his powers temporarily, at least to ask, uh, allow the House of Representatives uh, to get back into business. Matt Gates of Florida described that as the Bud Light approach. I'm not interested in Bud Light, he said, a reference there uh, to a popular American beer. And by that, he means Republicans like Mr. Gates view themselves as rigid constitutionalists. They adhere to every scintilla of the U.S. Constitution. And the idea that suddenly you can throw the rules out of the window because you're in a pickle and suddenly empower Patrick T. McHenry, the congressman from North Carolina, who this is this speaker pro tempore, is completely Completely now opposed by the Trump wing of the Republican Party. And that's why we went through this whiplash yesterday when at one point it seemed that that idea was catching steam and then suddenly it was completely taken off the table.
0: I mean, I wonder if the Trump backed Jordan and his Republican supporters are so used to their reality TV show president that they actually relish the drama.
3: Well, this is a great example, isn't it, of the way in which Donald Trump, uh, because he was involved behind the scenes uh, in orchestrating the ouster of Kevin McCarthy, uh, is a much better destroyer, along with his "Make America Great America," uh, "Make America Great Again" Republicans in Congress, than he is a builder. It's terribly easy to tear things down, as they did with Kevin McCarthy a few days ago. It's much harder, particularly when electoral politics in the House of Representatives actually requires you, uh, even within your own party at times, to forge compromise. It's much harder to do that and actually be constructive. And uh, of course, the Democrats are sitting back and just watching the show. They've put their own proposal forward to make their leader the Speaker of the House. They don't have the votes, of course, to do that. But this is an opportunity for uh, Joe Biden and Democrats across the land to point to the Republicans and say, you see, they're just basically vandals. All they want to do is vandalise the country. They can't even govern themselves internally to coalesce around a Speaker of the House of Representatives. Of course though, this sends a terrible message to the rest of the world about the uh, difficulties that America is facing in terms of its governability.
0: And, and what's at stake here? I mean, As you say, the House has been without a Speaker for two weeks. There's a looming government shutdown in November, as well as crises in Ukraine and the Israel-Hamas conflict. Uh, what 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 really is at stake and, and what's the resolution going to be?
3: Well, well, everything is at stake. I mean, President Biden, of course, has just made this speech encouraging Americans to get behind the idea of sending billions of additional dollars in aid to Israel and Ukraine. That is a non-starter if there is no Speaker of the House of Representatives. It might even be a non-starter if there is a Speaker of the House of Representatives. But without one, there's no mechanism for advancing any legislative request On any subject that he makes, you've got this looming government shutdown again in the middle of November uh, without some sort of resolution to this. Either they activate the idea uh, of uh, empowering the speaker pro tempore temporarily. Uh, or they come up with a compromise candidate they can all get behind. Otherwise, we're going to be sitting through this for uh, arguably weeks to come, and the, the governance of America will be paralysed.
0: Uh, Simon, as you say, how can democracy function in this environment? Doesn't there need to be a complete rethink of how this is handled? That The system needs to change
3: look, it's obviously very difficult and it is the outcome, it is the inevitable outcome of a close election. I mean, that's what happened in the midterm elections uh, of 2022. It was not any kind of landslide for either party. Uh, And so you then, in a particularly close situation with a very narrow majority for one party, you are then entirely reliant on the ability of members of the House of Representatives in this case to come to some kind of agreement, not necessarily within in their own party, it can be as we saw with the government shutdown vote, cross-party, where uh, Democrats and a, a, and some Republicans came together to keep the government open. But uh, without that spirit of comity, uh, then the wheels of governance grind to a close. And of course, all of America's challenges on the world stage—the Chinese, the Russians, others are watching this and when Joe Biden says that democracies liberal democracies can win the battle for primacy against autocracies like Russia and China they look at Joe Biden and say well there's no actual evidence on Capitol Hill right now to support that mm. but barring some sort of an agreement or a, 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 an, un, an, an unimaginable constitutional change which simply isn't going to happen you're relying on the the good offices of elected representatives to come to an agreement and american politics currently
0: doesn't seem to work like that simon marks thanks very much indeed this is the globalist
4: ubs has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries
2: over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today
5: To find out how we could help you,
2: contact
6: us
4: at ubs.com.
0: Let's continue now with today's newspapers. And joining me from our Zurich studio is Alexandra Terzio, who's CEO of the geopolitical firm Magpie Advisory and also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Uh, Alexandra, good morning to you. We're going to start off with a a piece from Bloomberg, and this is about she calling for a Gaza ceasefire.
7: Good morning, Georgina. Nice to be with you this morning. Um, yes, she yesterday he came out in his first remarks regarding the conflict between Israel and, and Palestine called for an immediate ceasefire. Um, and in his remarks, he went on to say that China is willing to cooperate and coordinate with Egypt with other M- Middle Eastern countries to, as he said, push for a comprehensive and lasting solution to the Palestine issue, which, from Beijing's perspective, is and long has been um, a two-state solution and and an independent um, Palestine, and his remarks also come. There's been a flurry of Chinese diplomatic activity over the last week. Um, earlier this week, speaking at the UN Security Council on Wednesday, China's ambassador um, made similar remarks. Also in that context, urging Israel to meet its obligations under um, the under international humanitarian law um, that was made in the context of the attack on the on the hospital in in Gaza. And Israeli diplomats in in, in China have been calling for a much more stronger condemnation nation from their Chinese counterparts um, of Hamas, um, especially since China is considered to be a friend of Israel. Beijing and um, Tel Aviv established relations in, in 1992 as part of China's wider reform and opening up. And Israel is now actually China's third largest trading partner um, with bilateral trade at around 23 billion just last year. Um, but the Israeli efforts are, are not really being met with, with much from, from the from the other side, Let's Let's say um, the Chinese have for a long time since the 1960s been quite adamant in in their support of Palestine um, and of the various political um, governments that have come through and they seem to be sticking through sticking by that excuse me um, mm. in this context as well
0: uh, we should just point out though that, that, that the uh, responsibility for the hospital attack has not yet been definitely attributed to one side or the other um, let's have a look at um, uh, the, the sanctions on in Venezuela, because it looks as if uh, the US is going to ease those. Tell us more.
7: It is, as if there isn't enough going on. The Biden administration on, on Wednesday um, announced that for six months now, it will ease sanctions on companies that either trade in oil that's produced in Venezuela or that invest in the Venezuelan oil industry. And this comes in response to the Venezuelan government's agreement to allow for um, allegedly free elections next year, including also allowing for international observers. Um, and this move, the the easing of sanctions reverses what really have been years of U policy that have been aimed at unseating uh, Maduro, but there are some interesting questions as to as to the timing and and really the underlying um, reasoning of this. Um, one U.S. government official commented that the hope is to bring about positive uh, democratic change and positive change in behavior in Venezuela. That of course remains to be seen whether that will be the case. And the other part of this, of course, is is widely strategic. Venezuela sits on one of the world's largest oil reserves, um, though of course decades of of underinvestment, mismanagement have have largely uh, left its oil industry uh, a, a wreck. Um, restoring output there would would require investments that only foreign companies could really make, uh, and foreign companies in this case are really kind of unlikely to to go in with with gusto unless they have some clarity on political risk in the first instance, and in the other instance, a sense that these sanctions will be eased for uh, longer than than just a few month period. And the other part of this, too, that's a bit of a question mark, the, the biggest challenge that the from an energy perspective, among others, that the Biden administration faces are are very high oil prices domestically. Um, and it's not clear that that this move would would help that in uh, in the near term prices dropped. Oil prices dropped slightly yesterday on the heels of the announcement, um, but are unlikely to, to drop much further Venezuela exported about 540,000 barrels of oil um, this August most of that went to China and it's not clear that it would really be able to export more anytime soon. Mm. Uh,
0: Now let's go to the New York Sun I have to say not one of our usual go-to publications but they are talking about uh, a noisy week lying ahead in Europe and this is about demonstrations in favor of Palestine.
7: Uh, yes. So this piece also comes in the context of the wider protests that we've been seeing in, in Germany and the UK and France and elsewhere. And it jumped out at me because the um, perspective is written from one of their reporters who's sitting in Greece, actually, which is not a country that we've heard a lot about in the context of um anti-israeli or, or pro-palestinian protests and what jumped out at me there is that this reporter uh, Angie, um, anthony grant he writes that there are currently around three thousand palestinian migrants that are sitting in detention centers throughout greece for for various reasons um, and there are local greek reports that are suggesting that some of them have been receiving um, messages via smartphones via smart devices um, encouraging them to incite against Um, against Israel um, with some sources suggesting you know that there might be various other external elements behind that and I think that just kind of points to and raises a a good and interesting question as to as to whether the protests that we're seeing throughout Europe and elsewhere whether they're spontaneous whether there's um, something more uh, behind this and in Greece for instance what the piece highlights in a fairly small island um, Samos which is a Greek island about a mile off the coast of Turkey some 700 people took to the streets um, on, on Tuesday. Um, so I think the, the, the New York Sun piece in this case points to some interesting dynamic and, and raises some interesting questions and in what is of course a, a much wider and still developing story mm.
0: and, and the piece specifically uh, cites Iran as, as being the, the outside actor that might be stoking up the, this uh, the, 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 these activities. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, Finally, let's go to the Wall Street Journal because this is all about having the best sleep of your life. (laughs)
7: I think uh, with geopolitical tensions running so high, many people are uh, clamoring for a good sleep. So myself is included, which is why I'm here bright and early. But apparently, the Wall Street Journal of Peace reports that many hotels are now actually offering dedicated sleep-focused experiences. Rooms are specifically tailored to be cool and dark and quiet. Um, Some are offering dedicated sleep menus where you could have drinks infused with things like ashwagandha and peppermint charcoal, all of them which, which are meant to improve um, sleep quality. Some are even offering uh, multi-night packages where you can have cryotherapy, sound wave treatments, um, and some even offering guests the option to collect um, sleep data via digital trackers and, and have that Data and their sleep quality reviewed um, by in-house experts. the The piece itself focuses largely on um, U.S. focused experiences. Though, I must say, Georgina, it's it's made me want to seek out some on on this side of the Atlantic uh, as
0: <laughs> well. Absolutely. So, listen, I've had a great business idea. Maybe Magpie Advisory wants to go in on me with this, but I've decided that what I'm going to do is I'm going to put pyjamas on, very respectable pyjamas. And then I'm going to hire myself out to sit in hotel bedrooms and read people bedtime stories.
7: Oh, that sounds brilliant. I would totally go in on that with you. Let's do it. We can, we can chat off air.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Alexander Terziad, thank you very much indeed. Thank uh, you, Georgina. Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Jones and rockets targeted two military bases housing U.S. forces in Iraq yesterday in the latest in a series of attacks after Iraqi militants warned Washington against intervening to support Israel against Hamas in Gaza. The United States has 2,500 troops in Iraq and 900 more in neighbouring Syria on a mission to advise and assist local forces in combating Islamic State. Niger's ruling junta said late last night it had thwarted an overnight attempt by deposed president Mohamed Bazoum to escape detention with his family, nearly three months after he was detained in the wake of a military coup. And Canada's foreign minister says that 41 of the country's diplomats had been removed from India after the Indian government said it would revoke their diplomatic immunity. The move comes after Canadian accusations that India may have been involved in the killing of a Sikh separatist leader in suburban Vancouver. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. The Joint Board of the Defence Ministries of Belarus and Russia met this week and signed a plan of cooperation. Part of this agreement concerns the deployment of Russian non-strategic nuclear weapons in Belarus. The head of the Belarusian military said that work has been carried out to equip storage sites and train personnel in the basics of use of the weapons. The Wall Street Journal has issued a video confirming that Russian Iskander missiles capable of carrying nuclear warheads have been spotted in Belarus. Well, I'm joined now by Dr. Marian Mesmer, who is a senior research fellow in international security at Chatham House. Marian, many thanks for coming on the show. Uh, we know that back in June, President Lukashenko boasted on Russian state TV that Belarus now had bombs, he said, that are three times more powerful than those dropped on Hiroshima and nagasaki but to be clear it seems that these are tactical weapons
5: hi yes um that's right so they are tactical weapons but the yield that tactical nuclear weapons have can vary it's not like a very fixed definition whereby you know we know exactly what their yield is and um of course, the nuclear weapons that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were the very first generation of nuclear weapons, so the technology has evolved a lot in the decades since then. So so while um, the Russian nuclear weapons that might be stored in Belarus um, are tactical and therefore probably lower yield, um, they might have the same yield or actually greater yield as the ones that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, um, they are in other words, they're still very big bombs, and their potential destructive capability could be quite large.
0: now, when this was first announced, there was some discussion over who actually had control of the weapons. Uh, Putin said Russia retains authority of their use. Lukashenko played down that idea, but who is in charge? who would
5: ultimately deploy them It's a good question um, my my assumption is that Russia is in charge uh, I think You know, Lukashenko obviously has a lot to gain from making it appear as if um, he has some veto power, as he said at some point, but it would be very unusual for Russia to transfer any control over those nuclear weapons to Belarus, and um, we would also normally expect Russian soldiers to be deployed alongside those weapons um, to guard their storage site and to be able to use them if it were to come to it. So um, I I would expect that Moscow remains firmly in charge. Mm.
0: Now, the Wall Street Journal uh, has released this video. Uh, How much does it tell us about Russia's expanding nuclear capability in Belarus?
5: uh so the the Iskander missiles that were seen um can be dual use so just because we've seen we've seen those missile launchers um that we can't necessarily say whether nuclear weapons are truly on site or not it is a strong indication but um it's not absolute proof. Um there are lots of colleagues who you know keep a firm eye on satellite imagery and so on to to try and ascertain whether russian nuclear weapons have been transferred or not. There were some movements earlier in the summer that came from locations in Russia where we wouldn't necessarily expect the types of nuclear weapons to be stored that Belarus is expecting. Um, But it is clear that some technology transfer is already taking place. I haven't seen any evidence that suggests that we can say definitely that Belarus has now got tactical nuclear weapons, but um, it looks like they are certainly preparing to receive them if they haven't received them yet. Mm. And, of course, that then leads us on to what threat this poses, not only
0: to, to Kiev, but also to the three NATO countries that Belarus borders, that's Poland,
5: Lithuania and Latvia. Yeah, of course. Um, so I think that this transfer has a some power. Um, What we shouldn't forget is that Russia actually has the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. So, If they wanted to either strike Kiev or other targets in Ukraine, or if they wanted to strike NATO, they already have the capabilities to do that from within their own borders. So they don't really need to transfer those weapons onto Belarus in order to have any strategic advantage in that sense. But um, sorry, carry on. Yeah. So what I was going to say is, um, you know, what we've seen is that um, Russia has been trying very hard to make sure that none of get that it has nuclear weapons. And one of uh, of the things that the Kremlin has been complaining about for many years now is that the US has nuclear weapons in different European countries. So um, one of the really big symbolic moves of storing Russian nuclear weapons in Belarus, of course, is that it is another way for Russia to have parity with the United States in that regard, because um, it is now then also going to be storing nuclear weapons on the territory of a close ally. Mm. Um, So I think that's the real significance of that
0: move, uh, and I wonder, I wonder if that then prompts a rethink about the complexity of nuclear deterrence. I mean, should there be a renewed focus on credible nuclear and conventional deterrence amongst European policymakers? We know that there's a, a defence conference in Seoul this week. I mean, they're mostly looking at at the Euro-Atlantic and tensions around Taiwan. But uh, I mean, is this is this something that is in the spotlight?
5: Of course, I mean it's it's been an issue that has garnered so much attention over the last eighteen months, and um, uh, we can also see that so much defense investment is going on in Europe. And I think that's a real chance for NATO members and other European NATO partners that aren't in NATO to really think about how conventional means can also support nuclear deterrence, so that um, European security looks as strong as possible. Dr. Marian Mesmer,
0: thank you very much indeed. This is Monocle Radio. It is 3.37 in Buenos Aires, 8.37 in Zurich. Now we head to Argentina, where people are getting ready to vote for a new president this coming Sunday. Populist Javier Malay is the favourite to win the first round and become the centre point of attention with his idiosyncratic worldviews. But can he win the election? And what about his competitors? Monaco Radio's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, spoke with Benjamin Gedan, who's head of the Wilson Center's Argentina Project. He started by asking Benjamin why voters feel so connected with Javier Millet.
1: Javier Millet has qualities individually that help explain his popularity. He is iconoclastic, comfortable on television, a former rock star and soccer player, and a very provocative figure who attacks traditional political parties, traditional political figures in a way that voters find very appealing, given all the struggles in Argentina. Um, But I I do want to emphasize that last characteristic of his campaign and his appeal, which is to say it is in some ways divorced from his charisma, his style, and above all, his agenda, and really does relate to this broader phenomenon in Argentina of deep frustration with the political system.
8: Is this deep frustration a similar thing that happened with the United States with Trump and in Brazil with Bolsonaro? Or is there something quite particular about Argentina in this case?
1: Argentina has all of the ingredients we've seen in other parts of the world and other parts of Latin America that have led voters to be much more open to anti-establishment candidates. Only in Argentina, everything is more extreme. All of those conditions are much worse. So you've had, you know, not just a bad year or two, but a bad decade, not just elevated inflation, but triple digit inflation, you know, negative growth, rising poverty, you know, high profile corruption scandals. It's a very long list of explanations. So in a sense, it's similar to other countries in the region, but again, much more exaggerated.
8: And I feel that, of course, we're getting very close to the to the, the weekend where uh, Argentinians will vote. It feels to me that it's almost a done deal that Javier Millet is going to win. Is that your feel as well?
1: It's likely that he will be the top vote getter in the election on October 22nd. It's not clear he will win because of a complex election system in Argentina that makes it difficult to win in a first round with several opponents. So what you might very well have is Javier Milei finish in first place, but have to face a second place finisher in a second round a month later.
8: And in terms of charisma and, you know, and other elements as well, perhaps the economy, what can you tell us about the other two main candidates, Sergio Massa from the current government and Patricia Bullrich as well? Do you think, you know, which one perhaps might have a better chance uh, against Javier Millet?
1: If it weren't for Javier Millet, this would be a very easy election for Patricia Bullrich. She is Representative of the traditional center-right opposition in Argentina, which would be having, again, a very easy time making the case that Argentina should rotate its political elites and and kick out of office the Peronists who have – led for the last four years during an enormously difficult political and economic period for Argentina. Unfortunately for her, Javier Millet has very much occupied that space of the alternative to Peronism. And so it's been very difficult for her to distinguish herself. What she has tried to do is portray her Party as the change agent that's more experienced, more responsible, more capable of actually governing and implementing reforms versus the bomb thrower from outside the system who promises more dramatic transformations, but very well might not be able to deliver. Again, that's a hard case to make when he portrays Patricia Bullrich as sort of a weaker version of himself, as someone who's not willing to go far enough and implement the transformations Argentina needs. As for Sergio Massa, that's an even more difficult campaign to run. He's currently the finance minister in a country that will probably have 200 percent inflation this year. That's in a recession um, that has these enormously complex and distortive government interventions of the economy. So even though he's not particularly close with the kind of parentism that has governed over the last few years, it's very difficult for him to distinguish himself from the current government. He's actually the most influential figure in the government today.
8: And, uh, Benjamin, tell us a bit more about your relationship with Argentina. You you, you spent quite a few months there uh, last year, for example. I mean, we, we hear a lot about the economy, how bad it is, but how, what's your uh, perception of the country, per se, with all the knowledge and the times you've been there as well?
1: Yeah. I spent about half a year in Buenos Aires last year. It's really hard to exaggerate how difficult conditions are for average Argentines at this point. We tend to think of Buenos Aires as this beautiful European style city where people live quite well. And that's true in some neighborhoods, um, but it's certainly not true for much of the rest of the country where more than 40% of the population lives in poverty. And even the kind of middle class and upper middle class can't function normally in an economy that is this topsy-turvy in an economy with this level of inflation and unpredictability. And so Argentines have grown resilient over time. They're used to endless cycles of political and economic crisis. But the fragility right now and the distortions of the economy right now have reached a level that it's impacting politics very directly. Things are very difficult and Argentines are very much on edge.
8: And finally, Benjamin, I just want to ask, because the international press has been focusing very much on the eccentricities of Javier Millet and, and perhaps this uh, very kind of right wing character, perhaps a little bit of culture wars. But what you're telling me that, of course, this might be a factor, but in Argentina, it seems to me that is very much the economy. That's, that's the main topic. So the culture wars, perhaps they're not as prevalent as they were in the US or in Brazil.
1: If anything, the culture war issues are a liability for Javier Millet. I think it would be a misreading of Argentine society and politics to think that what's appealing about Javier Millet is his opposition to reproductive rights, is his libertarianism, his desire to cut spending on science and avoid discussions of gender issues. All of these are at best a distraction and at worst a weakness of his campaign. Where he is appealing is his attacks against the traditional political system, his attacks against corruption and his belief that a different kind of politics and and economic management is possible plans like dollarization um, are of interest to argentine voters but a lot of his sort of more purely far-right libertarian agenda is either lost on most voters or again a net negative for him but easily overcome by the enthusiasm generated by his assaults on traditional politics and politicians who he decries as the political caste, as this nefarious group of self-serving actors stealing from Argentines and sapping the country's enormous potential.
0: That was Benjamin Guedan in conversation with Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio.
7: UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the
9: unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our
0: work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and
8: opinions from UBS all around the world.
0: It's time to talk theatre now with Matt Wolf, who is obviously a theatre critic, uh, and he joins me now in the studio. Matt, such a relief actually to talk oh, about theatre. I know,
9: theater. isn't it? Th- theatre really feels like a sanctuary these days, yeah. and long may it remain so.
0: Now, of course, you write for the New York Times, and indeed, we have I have your review of Sunset Boulevard in
9: front of me, and you gave it a good one. I did. It's a very divisive production. Not everyone will like it. Uh, it's certainly not one for the purists. Uh, people who remember the Trevor Nunn original from thirty years ago. Are to believe, which was really kind of recognized for its extraordinary set—this levitating, uh, you know, gothic mansion that Norma Desmond, the central character, lived in—and lots of kind of extraordinary uh, ensemble scenes and um, Glenn Close or Patty LuPone in a turban and flowing robes. None of that here. This is stripped back, distilled. There's virtually no set. It's all kind of handheld cameras and huge projections of the actors. But that makes sense because it's a show about the silent movie era, about people who had faces then. And uh, the casting coup, which I have to say I was skeptical about in advance, was Nicole Scherzinger playing Norma Desmond. I thought, why why her can she do it? And the answer is she can, especially in this production, because it's a production about how you're spat you're you're kind of taken in and spat out by the entertainment industry. Nicole's forty five in real life, and the landscape of Sunset Boulevard, that's ninety five. Mm. So you feel as if she understands the world of this material where your sell by date looms the next morning
0: let's go on to Vanya this is Andrew Scott's one man show now I've heard such varying reports that the the show itself isn't brilliant but he's
9: amazing would you agree? this is another one uh, very divisive this one I'm not quite as convinced about as I was by Sunset Boulevard he is brilliant no doubt about it it's an incredible kind of acting coup um I couldn't help but wonder, sort of, why bother? Uh, I love Uncle It's possibly my Desert Island play, and Andrew Scott appropriates all the roles. Again, it's, it's got a very modern aspect to it. There are no samovars, that, you know, there's no birch trees. They're none of the things you might associate with Russian drama. Um, and he does it really brilliantly. But I just kept thinking, what have I learned from this, aside from the fact that he's a wonderful protean actor, mm. which in a way I already knew.
0: Absolutely. Let's go to another one of your reviews. This time you're writing for London theatre.co.uk mm-hmm. and it's about death of England.
9: Yes, this is a very interesting one. First of all, it was delayed several times because of illness and when it finally did open, the woman who had come into the cast turned out to be the occasion of the show. Uh, a wonderful performer, she's been on television as sex education uh, called Sharon Duncan Brewster and she's one of two characters uh, in uh, two actresses in the cast the other Haley Squires and it's the last in a triptych of state of the nation look at contemporary Britain, Uh centering on a a kind of community of people in East London. The first two, which were also both seen at the National, centered on men. This takes a look at their women. Uh, Very ambitious, quite wide-ranging in its themes, I thought a little overstuffed. But Sharon Duncan-Bruce's performance is extraordinary, and it's worth seeing it for her.
0: Absolutely. Now, the London Evening Standard has announced its 2023 shortlist. They
9: have. And
0: you're on the panel.
9: I am. <laughs> 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 I am on the panel. We had our judging lunch. I don't think it's any great secret to say we had the lunch on Tuesday, so earlier this week. Um, and it's a very convivial group. And, you know, we don't always see eye to eye, but we g- kind of come out with... Uh, with a sort of an accord, as it were, to use statesmanlike terms, um, I think what's interesting about any sort of awards gathering—this happens every year with the Oscars—is to try to remember things earlier in the year. There's a great sense of, oh, well, this opened, you know, yesterday or two weeks ago. Let's let's give everything to that. But we, I think, we're quite conscious of. Acknowledging those shows, but also looking back. So, for instance, an obvious one is Guys and Dolls, Nicholas Heitner's wonderful production at the Bridge Theatre, which, in fact, I saw last night for the third time, and it's still in very good shape. So we were keen to kind of acknowledge that. Uh, Robert Jones's gorgeous set for Dancing at at the national, a production which long since has come and gone, a uh, beautiful show. The Orange Tree in Richmond, which again has long since vanished, called The Swell. So if these awards can kind of keep shows in the spotlight, I think that's important.
0: Uh, But what is the point if the show has already closed?
9: Well... Look, there are always onward lives for these shows, and they become the awards, become marketing tools. You know, you might want, want to move it to the West End or to New York or take it on tour. Let, let's put it this way if someone wants to give you an award in the theater world, people are usually happy to take it. <laughs> quite, <laughs> sure,
0: quite sure, uh, Matt, we featured a couple of your reviews in, in this chat today, and I just wonder about the responsibility of writing a review because you could kill someone's career stone dead or indeed make it the pit of the century.
9: Yes, that's something I think most critics are aware of and anyone who says that they're not as being disingenuous. I I really think of the critic particularly for live performance less so with films or books or something like that which are kind of around forever but live performance is fleeting uh, by definition and yes you can capture it on camera or on Zoom or whatever but it isn't the same. Uh, So I think part of the role of the critic is to be a chronicler. Uh, That's one of the reasons I love reading reviews of things way before my time. What was it like to be in the room with Olivier, with Richard Burton, with Paul Robeson, with whoever? And you know, that's I think the most important thing with a theater review is to recreate the experience. The opinion, yes, that's that's something. But be in the room where it happened, to paraphrase Hamilton, and that's very exciting.
0: Matt, thank you so much. That's Matt Wolf there, and this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. <laughs> Finally on today's show, the second edition of Paris and Art Basel is currently in full swing in the French capital. Taking place at the Grand Palais uh, and running until Sunday, the art fairs brought together 156 leading French and international galleries. Well, only Monocle's Robert Bound caught up with uh, the director, Clement Delapin, who previously headed up the popular art fair Paris International. Let's take a listen.
6: Clément, thank you very much for your time. It's a busy day for you today here at Paris Plus, in the heart of Paris. We are going from one week last week at Frise in, in a temporary structure to another one here in Paris. I'm going to use the phrase small is beautiful or size matters. <laughs> tell, us, uh, tell us about what, it, what it's like to have 155 booths at your disposal rather than Art Basel, sort of often 300 or something. Does size matter?
4: Well, size matters in the sense that it's um, also paramount to the experience. And I feel like, you know, visiting Paris Plus also gives you an opportunity of like... You know, immersing yourself in a high-quality, um, high-caliber art fair, but not feeling too dizzy about it. You know, leave uh, I don't know, serene and at peace, and uh, with the feeling that uh, you, you have seen enough. <laughs> and
6: you came from Paris International, which is a different, has a different vibe. What's the atmosphere? We understand yesterday there was a lot of, um, I won't call them shenanigans in such an upper echelon of the art world. But what was the, what was the atmosphere yesterday and, and what is it like today? What's the, what's the atmosphere that you'd like to create here at Paris Plus?
4: Well, obviously, I mean, the Art Basel Fair are, um, you know, celebrated for uh, their attention to details. You know, it's a certain look and feel. It's a certain attention to details again, a quality of service. You know, that's part of the experience. I mean, I I often joke that I'm in a hospitality business, you know, in a way. Sometimes I'm a real estate agent and sometimes I'm the concierge of a great hotel. But what I would like to bring, actually, to Paris Plus, to an Art Basel Fair, coming from Paris International, is a certain je ne sais quoi or a certain um, vibe you know or a certain um, feeling of um, how, conviviality if I if I A
6: bit sense. of togetherness and a bit of a good vibe a, little, a, a kind of salon environment people
4: To feel welcomed I want people to feel welcomed it's very important
6: to me And there's a big French focus at Paris Plus that's obviously a matter of geography but does that give you an opportunity to show what's coming out of French art schools French galleries across the country because it is very strong here in a way that perhaps it isn't at other art fairs in other parts of the world
4: Of course, for us, uh, context is of paramount importance. We run a cultural event, so it's for us absolutely crucial that this event has resonance across the city. And for this reason, we've decided to expand the size of the public program, which is the fruit of a collaboration with all the public institutions, private foundations, with the city itself. We aim to make this a true Parisian cultural event. And for that reason, it has to have a specific identity Uh, for our visitors also. To whom we, you know, cater four times a year, not including all the major uh, art events, you know, uh, during the during uh, the year. And so, we just want to offer our audience something else. We just want to make sure that when they're here, they know that they're in Paris, and it's a great occasion to showcase the excellency of the French scene and, uh, you know, the the future like emerging artists, like the future blue chip that you might encounter on the French market. Yeah,
6: it's been apparent in some of your communications and other another interviews, Clément, that you are encouraging people to really explore the city as a powerful art brand as Art Basel is it wants wants eyeballs on the fair on the galleries and the booths so it's a sort of act of generosity to go come and see us but go and get lost in the city go and find these other galleries these these nitty-gritty places perhaps as well and find new artists and things is that at at what point did you start having that discussion to to sort of have eyeballs on you but encourage people to really discover elsewhere as well
4: it happens at uh, different levels, you know. First, I mean, we are hosted in a public venue. Uh, this place belongs to the French state, and the landlord is the French Republic, you know. And so, it's uh, something that we think of. And the fact that we've been supported with such uh, enthusiasm by the the city, by the Ministry of Culture, also obliges us in a way. You know, uh, we kind of have to payback. And as I was mentioning before, it's equally important to make this, of course, a place of business because it's what it is, you know, at its heart. It's a commercial platform, but it's also, we're well aware that it's also a place where discourse is produced. And so we feel like with a a price ticket at 40 euros, you know, which uh, per Persian standards is pretty expensive. It's less than other Art Basel fairs, but it's still like, uh, if you're an art student in Paris, it's a sum. It's quite... We feel like we have a responsibility to also, like, um, speak beyond our walls, you know, and um, with these collaborations with the museums, we've uh, established a public programme which is accessible for free and open to all. It's a way for us to, certainly not to uh, uh, put ourselves up there with the museums, but to institutionalise the fair, which is uh, an important uh, aspect of Paris+. And just finally, the
6: weekend is in the offing. What are a couple of things that, if you weren't running this fair, that you would be scampering off to go and see personally this weekend in Paris?
4: Well, I mean, the, the quality of exhibitions on view, you know, in Paris right now, it's uh, pretty sensational. The Rothko retrospective at the Fondation Viton, the Mike Kelly retrospective at the Bourse de Commerce, plus Cercer Serpas and Lilo Zano, which is actually a work that, in my opinion, is really highly underappreciated and needs to be rediscovered enthusiastically. Um, Easy Wood, you know, at La Fête Anticipation, paired with Hakim Smith, I mean... Those are like, it's just a, a number of like the, the few exhibitions. The Musée d'art Moderne, you know, has uh, uh, Dana Schutz, Nicolas de Stal, Wade Guyton. Uh, right across the street at Palais de Tokyo is Lily Renaud de Hoare. So also institutions, they really have stepped up. Right now, culturally speaking, there is um, so many ways to be satisfied, you know.
6: So you're saying cancel the Eurostar and stay, stay another week at least?
4: Well, if not two, you know.
6: clement i can see you having to be being nabbed by someone Uh, you've got you're a busy man we'll let you get back to the uh, back to the feather thank you very much indeed
4: thanks to you i think like americans they have this expression that if you want to get something don't ask a busy person so (laughs) i appreciate thank you
0: Clement Delapin there in conversation with Monocle's Robert Bound. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Cece Armstrong, Tom Webb and Isabella Jewell, our researcher Harrison Warlock and our studio manager, Tamsin Howard. Okay. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday in London and The Globalist returns at the same time on Monday. Uh, and don't miss Meet the Writers this weekend with Alexandra Pringle. One of the things she'll be talking about is the Palestine Literature Festival. I'm Georgina Godwin.